Well, uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be uh, with you again here uh, in Gillenherk uh, this morning and uh, to almost see you, uh, but um, I can still see the whites of your eyes, uh, which is uh, always, always helpful uh, whenever, you're, whenever you're a preacher. Uh, well, as Jill has uh, mentioned, we're going to be looking uh, at the Ten uh, Commandments uh, this morning in this uh, ongoing series uh, in the book of Exodus, Travelling Mercies. Uh, so let's uh, take a moment or two uh, to read uh, those commandments together uh, in God's Word as we find them in Exodus uh, chapter 20. So Exodus uh, chapter 20, and we're going to uh, read together from the opening verse. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in earth above or on earth beneath, or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God. Over the years, uh, whenever a couple have come to me for marriage classes, I've usually told them that it's easy to get married. Uh, You make your promises, you fulfill your legal requirements, and you are married. However, the question that they face is whether or not they want to be happily married, and whether they want their marriage to be a source of joy for them. And presuming that they do, that they want to be more than married in the eyes of the law, well then that's more difficult. It's more difficult because it forces them to think not about the wedding, which is usually all-consuming at the point at which they come to see me, But they need to think about their relationship. They need to think about their relationship and how that will be conducted as they enter married life together. They need to think about what they uh, should do if they want to have a happy, fulfilling marriage. 
Remember we, we turn to the, the Ten Commandments, perhaps the, the last thing that we think is that they have anything to do with having a, a good life or, or a happy life. We have that sinking feeling that Jill talked about this morning that we think, oh, rules. And uh, even as Christians, we, we may uh, think about the Ten Commandments in rather negative ways. Ten stark commandments that have to be obeyed. Commandments that create a joyless legalism. And as a result, even some Christians dismiss the Ten Commandments. They believe that they have nothing to do with the liberty that they enjoy as Christians. Indeed, many Christians may not even know the Ten Commandments. Uh, Surveys regularly uh, tell us that many ministers, many pastors do not even know the Ten Commandments. But when we look at the the Ten Commandments in their biblical context, we see that they are in fact all to do with a happy, healthy, blessed relationship with God. They are indeed part of God's traveling mercies towards his people. As such, it should make us sit up and pay attention as Christians and ask ourselves, what do these Ten Commandments have to teach me about building a happy, healthy relationship with God. Like a wedding, we're in a relationship. But if we want that relationship to be happy and healthy, well then we need to think about what that relationship looks like. And so these Ten Commandments help us to do that this morning. As we approach the Ten Commandments, the first thing that we need to do is get our bearings In chapter 19, God recounts to Moses how he has rescued Israel, in verse 4, from the land of Egypt. And how he will now establish a covenant with them as his treasured possession. And under the terms of that covenant, they must now obey God fully. This is the solemn and the binding contract that God makes with his people. If they are to enjoy all the benefits of living in a right relationship with God, then they must obey him. Then at the beginning of chapter 20, we find that God speaks to his people, not through Moses, but in verse 1, he speaks to them directly. And that's in chapter 19 and verse 4, he once again says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And this is an extremely important statement which reminds us the Israelite, or reminds the Israelites why God is giving them the Ten Commandments. He's giving them the Ten Commandments because He has entered into a relationship with them. He has rescued them that they might be His people. And if they are to maintain that healthy relationship with Him, if they are to live in accordance with all that He has called them to be as His people, Remember back in chapter 19, he has called them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But if they're to fulfill all that God has called them to be, then they must obey and keep these ten commandments. And as they do so, then they will enjoy the blessings that God has promised to them as his people. Now it's important that we grasp what is going on here. God is saying, I have rescued you for a relationship with me. 
If that relationship with me is to be healthy, then this is how you are to live. He's not saying if you keep these commandments, you will be saved. They are not saved if they obey the commandments. Rather, they are saved by God's grace so that they might obey the commandments. Commandments which bring not only obligation, but ultimately commandments that will bring blessing to them. Commandments which express God's holy character, as we've been thinking about that character this morning. And commandments which, if obeyed, will enable them to live holy and happy lives in a peaceful and just society. It's rather like migrating to a new country. And after living in that country for a few years, you decide that you will become a citizen. So you apply for citizenship, you go through the, the various procedures for that, and you become a citizen, and as such you're, you're now a citizen just as much as if you had been born in that country. And of course one of the expectations is that in becoming a citizen, you will now become a law-abiding citizen. But suppose after living in that country as a citizen for a period of months, you then break the law, what happens? Well, your citizenship is not revoked. Your citizenship is not founded upon your obedience to the law of the land. Rather, obedience to the law is one of the ways in which you fulfill your citizenship of that country. And this is what we are seeing here with these Ten Commandments. Obedience is not the basis for Israel becoming the people of God. It is the basis of their living as the people of God. It is the basis upon which they might maintain a healthy relationship with God. And it's important that we understand this because ultimately Israel did not. Instead, we see that gradually she became convinced that it was by keeping the law, and not just the Ten Commandments, but the law in all its parts, that she would be saved. And so during Jesus' days on earth, we see that he clashed with the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, because they were confident that they would be saved by keeping the law. Indeed, they were meticulous in keeping the law for this very reason. However, Jesus made clear that no one could ever be saved by keeping the law. And those who tried to find salvation by keeping the law, they were on a fool's errand. And they were trusting in their own good living for salvation, rather than trusting in God. Furthermore, their outward observance of the law, as Jesus repeatedly pointed out, it was just that. They did not love God. They did not love his law from their hearts. Their law keeping was not a response to the grace of God. But a means of self-justification before God and before others. The Apostle Paul reiterated Jesus' message. Notably in Romans and Galatians. Telling us that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Indeed, he insisted that that has never been the case. 
Instead, using the example of Abraham, he reminded us that God's people have never been justified by their works. They have never been justified by keeping the law. They have always been justified by the grace of God through faith in him. And it's vital this morning that we grasp this message. This morning that none of us can be saved by keeping the law. It was the error that many Israelites fell into in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it's an error that many people continue to fall into today. Many people today hope that they are good people. They think, I I, I don't break the law. So what is there to, to keep me out of heaven? Or in the great Northern Ireland way we have of putting it, I never do anybody any harm. So what is there to keep me out of heaven? But the hope of heaven when we die based on our own goodness, based on our own law keeping, based on our own religious observance, that strikes at the very heart of the gospel. The Apostle Paul sums it up when he writes in Galatians 2 and 21, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That's the nub of the matter. If we can be saved by our own goodness, if we can be saved by our own obedience, well then Jesus died in vain. And that is the big issue for everyone who trusts in their own righteousness. If our righteousness is good enough, then why did Jesus die? If we don't need Jesus to save us, he died for nothing. But Jesus did not die for nothing. Jesus died to save us from our sins. To obtain for us a righteousness that none of us could obtain by ourselves. None of us could obtain by observing the law. For as Paul tells us quite plainly, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is by trusting in Jesus and his atoning death for our sins as the only way in which we can be right with God that anyone can be saved. That anyone can have the hope of heaven. Just as Israel needed God to deliver them from Egypt, we need Jesus. To deliver us from our captivity and slavery to sin. Now that might raise in your mind then the question this morning, well why then do we need the Ten Commandments? If keeping the law cannot save us, why do we need the Ten Commandments? Surely we're we're not under the law anymore, but we're, we're saved by grace. So why do we need the Ten Commandments? Let me say four things very briefly uh, in response to that type of question. The first is to say that the commandments express God's will for his people for all time. That God's people should love him exclusively as the true and the living God. And they should love one another. God gives the Ten Commandments not as a means to bind his people, but as a means to bless his people. And we should thank God for them. We should thank God for the Ten Commandments. They are a sign of His grace. They are indeed those traveling mercies that we've been thinking about 
in recent weeks. Secondly, we must understand what the New Testament means when it says that we are not under the law, but under grace. We find this statement in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15. And there, actually, it forms part of a question. Paul writes, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? To which he answers, by no means. Christians were once slaves to sin, but now because of God's grace in their lives, they've been set free from sin, he says, to live lives of righteousness. We've been set free to obey God. We've been set free to keep his commandments from the heart. Thirdly, these commandments, as we've seen, are expressive of God's will for his people for all time. And this is affirmed by Jesus in his summary of the law in Matthew 22, 37-39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells us that we obey God, we love God whenever we keep his ten commandments. And fourthly, the Ten Commandments remind us of our need of grace for daily living. Whenever Jesus speaks of the Ten Commandments, he takes us beyond mere legalism. He takes us beyond mere rule-keeping. He takes us beyond routine obedience. He takes us to the very heart. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five twenty-one and 22, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You see, Jesus speaks not simply of our outward conformity to the law, but the inward attitudes of our hearts. And as such, the law continues to remind us of Christians of our shortcomings. Our failures. When as Christians we look at the law, we're reminded, aren't we, that we are lawbreakers. For we see beyond the superficial to the corruptions of our hearts. We see hopefully none of us have gone out and taken a life this week. But I wonder how many of us have harbored hatred in our hearts, contempt in our hearts, Bitterness in our hearts. Look perhaps at someone and thought, I wish you were dead. The law reveals to us the corruption of our hearts. That we must flee to Christ for grace and for forgiveness. It's the conviction of God's law that brings us to Christ for forgiveness. The Ten Commandments, when we look at them, when we listen to them, should lead us, in fact, to magnify the grace of God in our lives. And recognize that none of us could ever be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. That only the grace of God can save us. Well, bearing these things in mind, then, we're going to turn to the commandments themselves. 
And these commandments, uh, still remind us, are divided into two groups, or sometimes referred to as two tables. Uh, the first of these, uh, commandments one through to four, have to do with our relationship with God. And the second group, five through to ten, deal with our relationships with others. And it's the first four uh, dealing with our relationship with God that I want us to think about uh, this morning, and then, God willing, next Sunday morning, uh, we'll pick up again uh, and think uh, about the remaining uh, the remaining six. So first of all, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You will have no other gods before me. If we've been readers of the book of, of Exodus, then immediately this opening statement will grab our attention. I am. I am. is the, the name by which God, remember, introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. He's also, as we've seen, the God who brought them out of Egypt. So God is saying, remember who I am. The God who heard your cries. The God who came to your rescue. The God who overcame every obstacle and every power arrayed against you. The God who overcame the gods of Egypt and delivered you. And now you will have no other gods before me. Now, what God says here is both startling and unique, because when he speaks this word, it is into a culture where people worship a whole array of gods. And furthermore, there was no expectation that a person would worship just one god exclusively. There were over 2,000 different gods in Egypt. There were some national gods, there were some local gods, there there were some gods that were related to very specific activities. The thought that you would only worship one God, well, that was unthinkable. In fact, you needed all these other gods uh, to cater for your every need. But the God who delivered Israel claimed that he alone was God. And as such, he alone is to be worshipped. When God declares, I am, he's telling the Israelites and he's telling us that he is the self-existent. Self-sufficient God. That he is the God who has no beginning and no end. He is the God who is not served by human hands. He alone is God. And he is altogether different from any other God that we might imagine. Again today we find ourselves, don't we, in a spiritual supermarket. We live in a society where... Once again, people worship many different kinds of supposedly divine beings and forces and powers. And Christians find themselves under pressure again today to accept this as the norm. People today don't mind if you're a Christian, so long as you don't make any exclusive claims about your faith. So long as you don't say there is only one God. The God whom we worship. But the God who reveals himself in the Bible still makes that same claim. And he still makes that same demand not only upon Christians, but upon all of humanity. That he alone is God. He alone is to be worshipped exclusively. 
Well, secondly, God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Again, Egypt was a land of idols. The Israelites were familiar with these gods. Perhaps you've seen these uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics yourself. Gods represented by birds and cats and dogs and animal-human hybrids. But God forbids the making of idols. Why does God forbid the making of idols? Well, Jill's already reminded us this morning, because there is nothing in all creation that can adequately represent God. There is an absolute distinction between the God who has created everything and that which he has created. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the folly of idolatry exposed. As people set up these feeble representations of gods that cannot stand on their own two feet, let alone represent the true and the living God. Read through the prophet Jeremiah, and God laughs at these representations of him. They can't even stand on their own two feet. A man carves them out of wood and then he takes the rest of the wood and burns up and makes his dinner. How foolish it is to think that we can represent the true and the living God by anything in creation. Of course, we might pride ourselves today that we're not in the danger of of falling into idolatry. Who would be so foolish, we think? We're not like those ancient primitive people with all those kind of superstitious beliefs. We're far too sophisticated for that kind of behavior. But while times have changed, the human heart has not. And we're not as far removed from these ancient people as we might imagine. For not all idols are made of wood and stone and look like creatures. When we look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5 or Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, we say there that idolatry is expressed in immorality impurity, and especially greed. Or if you turn to the book of Revelation, Christians were warned there against the worship of the beast. That was the emperor, the one who controlled access to the religious, political, and economic realms. See, worshipping that, which gives us power in this world. For the essence of idolatry is less to do with the physical representations of God or gods than with the inclinations of our hearts to worship God's substitutes. That's where the real problem lies. That in our lives we're apt to worship God's substitutes. In that sense, the, the... Uh, French reformer John Calvin was right when he said that the, the human heart is an idol factory. In our lives we can turn anything, even good things, into ultimate things. And they become idols, they become God substitutes in our lives. Might be wealth, as Paul says. Can be sex. Can be our career. Can be sport, can be medicine, 
Someone said recently, British people today, they don't worship God, they worship the NHS. It can be politics. And so the list goes on. And very often the subtlety of idolatry is that it's not that people give up on God completely, but they begin to add on these other things. And as they do so, the living God eventually becomes squeezed to the periphery of our lives. You see, you can be in church twice on a Sunday, singing the hymns, listening to the sermon, and still be an idolater in your heart. Do you want to know if you're slipping into idolatry? Here are four questions that you might ask yourself. Ask yourself, what do I devote my time to? What do I devote my time to? What do I give my money to? What do I hope in or trust in? And what occupies my thought life? Examine yourself today. Are there things in your life that are in danger of becoming the idols of your heart? Third commandment, then God says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Then this commandment, God forbids the careless use of his name, because such a careless use is at root a defamation of his character. The name by which God reveals himself, I am that I am, you see, is not just a label. It reveals his character. It reveals the fact, as we've seen, that he is the self-existent, self-sufficient God without beginning and end and is not served by human hands. Now, of course, in the day in which we live, this commandment uh, is readily broken. No one but Christian believers really pay the slightest Attention to this commandment. The name of God is misused constantly. And in that misuse we see the logic of this commandment. God's name is used lightly because he is treated lightly. The two go together. God's name is used lightly because he is treated lightly. However, the ways in which we break this commandment go beyond actually using the divine name as an expletive. There are other ways in which we can break this commandment even as Christians. One is when we offer worship that does not honour the name of God. When our worship is careless. When our worship is false. When our worship is mere lip service. Or when we're looking for worship to make us feel better. Rather than giving glory to God. Another way in which we can break this commandment is whenever we invoke God's name in support of a particular cause or a particular action. People today will often do something or say something and justify it on the basis, well, God told me to do it. That is a very witty claim. That we say we're doing something because we're acting directly on the basis of God's instruction. And where we make such a bold claim, we must be careful that we're not bringing dishonor to God's name. And of course, some people use the name of God in support of some particular cause. 
We often see this as people try to unite God's name to, to some political cause. And we've been very aware of that in, in recent weeks and months. And certainly it's not something that we're immune to in this part of the world. But when we see God's name being added to some political cause, we should instantly see that this commandment is being broken. Because God's name is not wedded to any earthly political cause. God is not the possession of any political party or any political cause. The fourth commandment then that God gives says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The reason that he gives this commandment in verse 11 is for in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Just as God sanctified the seventh day of the creation week, so in this commandment, he sanctifies the seventh day of the week for the Israelites as a day of rest. And then when this commandment is repeated in Deuteronomy 6 and 17, God commands the people to remember the Sabbath as a memorial of their deliverance from Egypt. So the Sabbath day is a gift again from God to his people. A gift that reminds them that he is the creator. A gift that reminds them of his great salvation. A gift that reminds them of his covenant with them and the accompanying blessings. How exactly we're to obey this commandment today is a matter, as you may know, of some disagreement amongst Christians. For some people we are to obey it, just as we find it here in Exodus chapter 20. And so there are some groups like Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists who observe Saturday as the Sabbath. They understand that that's what the Old Testament is teaching. Well, there are, there are other groups then who think that we should obey this commandment just as we find it in Exodus chapter 20, but only we should obey it on a Sunday rather than a Saturday. And so the Lord's Day, as it speaks in the New Testament, it becomes a Sabbath. And then there are still others that think Christ fulfilled the Sabbath, and so the life of the believer is now a continual Sabbath as we daily enjoy the benefits of all that we've received in Christ, and that's not limited to one particular day. Now, when we read the New Testament, we find again that there seems to have been some disagreement amongst Christians about the Sabbath. And so in Romans 14, for example, Paul argues that the keeping of sacred days, including the Sabbath, is a matter of conscience that we each must resolve to our own satisfaction because we will all someday give an account before God about this. So how we obey this commandment today will create a debate amongst Christians. And there must be a liberty of conscience in this matter. But nonetheless, that does not render the commandment irrelevant. Instead, Paul says we each must in our own minds be fully persuaded about what it means to honour this commandment. I think it helps us to to think about this when we remember again the primary design of the Sabbath. 
the primary design of the Sabbath again is it's a gift. It is a gift from God to us. And this is reinforced by Jesus in his words in Mark 12 and 27, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So whatever the spiritual significance of the Sabbath, it has a very practical purpose that we still need to think about. That is, we still need to rest. And in particular, we still need to set aside time to recognize the primary claim that God has upon our lives and upon our time. For that reason, I think there are very good practical reasons for continuing to observe one day a week as a day of rest. But in particular, a day in which the primary claims of God upon our lives are recognized. A day when we remember in particular the salvation that God has brought to us. A day in particular in which we celebrate the new covenant made in his son's blood. That was indeed the practice of the early church. And it's one which I think is still good for us to uphold today. And I think as Christians, we should give thanks to God. That Sunday still largely does provide us with an opportunity to have a day off. And in particular a day off so that we might engage in worshipping God together. I think this is particularly true because we do live lives today that are consumed with all kinds of busyness. Uh, One uh, writer, uh, Kevin DeYoung, says, if you ask anybody today, how are things going? Their response is almost always crazy busy. We all have that sense of crazily busy lives. But here's an opportunity to set some time aside to rest from the busyness of life and to recognize the primary claim of God upon our lives. One writer has recently stated, Sabbath rest should, at the very least, consist of intentional time to pull away from every other pursuit or obligation and instead feast on the God who is in Christ. However, today we we understand the Sabbath. We should understand that God did not give us the Sabbath as a grim obligation. It has always been a gift from God. It has always been one of his traveling mercies. And we should think carefully about how we use this gift from God. How we might celebrate it for our benefit and for our blessing. May God bless his word to our hearts this morning. Let's take a moment or two to pray together. Oh Lord our God, we do thank you for your word to our hearts this morning. And Father, we do thank you that it does uh, instruct us about how we might enter into the fullness of the blessings and the benefits which you have given to us as your people. Help us, Father, to take your word to heart and to recognize that it is in the keeping of these commandments that we shall love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Father, we do pray that your word would continue to speak to us even after we have left this place this morning. 
And Father, help us to respond to your word in faith and in obedience. We're necessary, Lord God, to repent of our sinfulness and to set our hearts afresh on you as first in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.